Good Saturday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good day, um, as well as evening. I know I have, um, and how ironic that here earlier today we were supposed to have gotten some um, rainstorms in my neck of the woods, and what do you know, it hadn't rained at all. So, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, just when they say it's going to rain and it doesn't, Mother Nature has her own way of um, throwing curveballs. The same could be said for those who spend their lives out on the waters, as what we've learned from uh, Michael Schumacher's The Mighty Fitz, The Sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. No matter where we are in terms of our plans or whether we make a career out on the Great Lakes, Mother Nature's presence is with us all the time. To be both good and bad. Unfortunately for the Fitzgerald, it was not. It was not for um, the good when it came to her um, unexpected um, death on the seas. So, what are we going to be talking about tonight with Michael Schumacher's *The Mighty Fitz*? Now, I know most of you out there are probably thinking to yourselves. What all else is there to talk about? I mean, we've, we already know that the ship sank. Uh, we already know that Gordon Lightfoot um, has uh, written a, a musical honoring the 29 men who've lost their lives, who lost their lives on the Fitzgerald. Uh, what else could we talk about? Well, Michael Schumacher uh, covered a great deal in his uh, novel, The Mighty Fitz, and so here we are tonight. We're going to be focusing on um, the aftermath of uh, 1976. In other words, 1976 was the year that uh, Gordon Lightfoot's uh, song came out, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was also the same year in which um, the Curve Expedition um, from May 20th to the 28th of that year um, went about um, discovering... Um, the Fitzgerald herself. But in the years after 1976, most notably in the 1980s, is what we're going to be discussing tonight. So, here's a good lead-off question. Probably already answered some of it, but I'm going to tell you right now. Was it inevitable that the Edmund Fitzgerald's wreckage site would be revisited? Uh, the answer is yes. However, can anybody go visit a wreckage site of a ship at any time they want? Well, the answer is no. In order for an exploration to take place, what has to be required? Well, given that the Great Lakes, with the only exception of Lake Michigan, that's the only one of the five Great Lakes that is uh, just on the United States side, but for any shipwreck that occurred that has occurred on not only just U.S. waters but Canadian waters, approval has to come from either the United States or the Canadian government. However, after 1976, neither the U.S. or Canadian governments were inclined to sponsor future expeditions to the Fitzgerald for various reasons. One such factor I can think of might be because of budgetary purposes. How much 
do each of the do each one of the governments that is the United States and the Canadian government how much money do they want to spend on um, something that while yes may be worth exploring more but then you have to ask yourself where else, could we be using the money for better purposes so while the curve expedition and of course what curve means is that um, cable controlled underwater, underground research vehicle expedition, while yes, it uh, did achieve, it achieved, how do I say it, it made some achievements, it or it accomplished certain um, goals, especially determining that the ship 530 feet below Superior was none other than Edmund, than the Edmund Fitzgerald, given the wording on the ship itself was visible. It wasn't just, oh, we found the ship, but in order to prove that the ship itself was the real thing, we saw uh, wording on the ship titled Edmund Fitzgerald, Milwaukee. The curve um, expedition itself, while having gone over the bottom of the stern, it was unable to locate tears in the hull to dents, scrapes, or missing paint. The bow of the ship was buried in more than 20 feet of mud with taconite pellets everywhere. So remember this, people. When a ship sinks as violently as the Edmund Fitzgerald did, it's just, yes, it um, violently slammed into the ground below uh, the surface of Lake Superior, but it wasn't a gentle. It was not a gentle landing. It wasn't like an airplane landing on the runway. And you know, an airplane can control how it lands on the runway for the most part, as long as there's no internal um, issues that would cause an emergency landing. When the Fitzgerald sank, it was so violent that it left a huge. Um, what do you call it? It left a huge scar at the bottom of the floor. And when you think about how much mud was, imp not just so much the impact of mud, but the force itself, how much sediment or sedimentation below um, has buried the bow. So, in order, uh, and I should remind you all that the Fitzgerald did sink on Lake Superior's Canadian side. So, in order for any future exploration to take place, what is going to be the alternative option, given that both the United States and the Canadian governments aren't um, so gung-ho on wanting to do another expedition, being government-funded money? Well, any future exploration will have to be privately funded. Privately funded explorers and organizations would have to, in this case, go before the Canadian government to explain their reasons as to why an exploration ought to take place. And this will also include being given necessary permits to visit the wreck. If permission was approved to explore the wreck, the expedition itself would be very costly. How so? Cost factors range from hiring a boat and crew to obtaining advanced equipment Think about it. You just, you just can't go up one morning and say, oh, well, you know what? Let's go to the bottom of uh, Lake Superior 
Let's go see if we can find this ship, the Edmund Fitzgerald. It is a grave site, just like with any shipwreck. And of course, I'll be talking about this in another podcast down the road, but it's one thing to go visit a, a wreckage site of a ship if you've gotten approval. The bigger question will be is, number one, what are you trying to prove out of visiting the wreckage site in terms of uh, theories? But secondly, are you trying to profit off of the expedition? In other words, are you going to be taking up items? And if you are, are they serving as an educational purpose to educate the public, or are you making profit off of items? So these are what you call serious ethical questions that will have to be uh, taken into consideration. And, you know, having, it's one thing to go about hiring a boat, that is, you know, obtaining a boat, and then you got to have a crew, and the crew has to be uh, very well experienced. They have to be able to know how to navigate the waters of Lake Superior. They've got to know where the deepest points are, because given just how big Superior is, it, no matter where you are, whether you're on the eastern edge of the lake being Mishapikaton and Caribou Islands, or to uh, the westernmost part of the lake, which goes all the way to Duluth, Minnesota, no matter where you are, the depths of the lake are going to change. And then having that advanced equipment is not cheap either. So basically, have the advanced equipment is going to require investors with lots of money. And we're not just talking rich millionaires here. We're just talking about people who have experience out on the waters, who have spent a lifetime not just um, doing um, expeditions, but uncovering archaeological um, underwater um, findings. And who none other would be a good person to turn to for this kind of adventure? He's deceased. Uh, He's been deceased for a little over 20 years, but I um, do remember reading about him in science classes in high school and seeing him on television. The late Jacques Cousteau, who was a French underwater archaeologist and explorer, he became the first person to invest money in the expedition to the Fitzgerald's wreckage site. And it was on September 24th of 1980, this is almost five years after the Fitzgerald sank, two of Cousteau's um, crew members, uh, that of the Calypso, they were the first people to actually visit the Fitzgerald, and, it, and they did so in a two-person submarine trip. This trip uh, was not an extensive um, outing, in other words, it didn't go over uh, one day. Basically, the trip lasted only half an hour. What? How much could you accomplish in half an hour? Would you say that these two men were trying to um, learn as much as possible? Sure. But their primary focus on this trip was on the bow section, being the front of the ship. These two divers, who whose names are Albert Falco and Colin Monnier. These two divers, or should I say these two men, became convinced that the dents that, that they noticed 
were on the Fitzgerald's uh, bow section were caused by a series of collisions between the bow and the stern sections as the Fitz was breaking apart on the surface, or should I say the Fitzgerald? Well, it is possible that, yes, that dents in the ship could be brought about by uh, the bow and the stern sections themselves breaking apart. But the only thing I could think of is that, hey, these dents can't be what you call 101 scratches. These dents had to have been pretty big because when you have rogue waves going from 15 feet and higher on up, the dents have to really show. The dents have to, the dents themselves have to, um, they have to have exposed, been exposed to some huge cracks. Or not just cracks, but waves that bring about punctures that leave bad marks. Because waves themselves can, you know, obviously take out the inside of a ship. Not just its outside, but the inside when water comes in. So for Albert Falco and Colin Monnier, both of these men believed that the Fitzgerald sank in the same manner as a ship being none other than the Daniel J. Morrell had done so back in November of 1966 on Lake Huron. And what do you know? November. The gales of November. November being the cruelest month for all the Great Lakes, or for all five Great Lakes, no matter where a boat might be on those five bodies of water. So, uh, what do we, here's a little history on the Daniel J. Morrell. It was an iron ore freighter, just like the Edmund Fitzgerald. It was an older ship. Um, but the Daniel J. Morrell broke apart on Lake Huron due to heavy seas. Of course, the Fitzgerald took on heavy seas. But a but from what Michael Schumacher uh, has described about the Daniel J. Morrell, the ship broke apart on Huron due to heavy seas, which caused the ship's two broken sections to severely collide. In other words, they collided with one another. The stern section swung around and slammed directly into the bow portion until both pieces finally broke apart. Now, I will say this. If that did happen, those seas, given just how heavy they were, there had to have been some pretty bad rogue waves to be able to cause that kind of destruction where the stern section could violently turn herself around to where she could just swing and hit the bow with such sheer force. Yeah, I mean, that to me uh, sounds, I mean, that, that to me is very, very powerful. Now, I don't know how long the Daniel J. Morrell was. I don't, well, I take it back, I, I take this back. It wasn't obviously the same um, length as the Edmund Fitzgerald, but still, if in fact her sterns slammed directly into the bow, then that kind of uh, force uh, says a lot about just how uh, powerful storms can be 
in return uh, to yield uh, such major damage to a ship as she meets her untimely death. However, Albert Falco and Colin Monier both were able to determine, or they both believed that the Fitzgerald may not have sank as quickly as um, some experts had had thought so in the past, or, or a couple of years earlier. Both of these men believe that the ship broke apart and somehow stayed afloat for a period of time before both pieces sank. On the other hand, this could be possible that when the Fitzgerald did hit a shoal around the Six Fathom Shoal area, it is very possible that the ship still managed to stay afloat but obviously the rogue waves it encountered at the end, on top of her um, already starting to list, would have been what, what I have mentioned as, uh, as in other podcasts, the straws that break the camel's back. On the other hand, though, um, Falco and Monier... Um, did believe that if the Fitzgerald broke in two while sinking, then the bow and the stern themselves would have been spaced further apart. I will say this, though. The Calypso mission, while yes, it was newsworthy, it didn't offer anything of long-term relevance. In other words, it was one thing to go down and do um, an expedition to the Fitzgerald, but for only half an hour, for one day... In other words, um, is it really enough to to make theorists believe that, hey, are these findings significant? Well, you know, everybody's got their own theory about what caused the Fitzgerald to sink. But more has to be done in order to really get to the bottom of the matter. So, here's a good bonus question for you all. Throughout the 1980s, did there remain a strong interest in keeping the Fitzgerald spirit alive? Oh, the answer is yes. Come every November, radio stations played regularly Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and Mariner's Church of Detroit was regularly holding services honoring the 29 men. So by the very end of the decade, being that of the 1980s, in 1989, another expedition to the Fitzgerald wreckage site launched was launched. This time, instead of a curve, there was what was called a rove, R-O-V rather, a remote-operated vehicle. It had similarities to the from the curve expedition of 1976, but the R-O-V, or I should say that remote-operated vehicle, was far more sophisticated. The ROV itself could make, or should I say, discover findings of the wreckage that were 3D, or should I say, three-dimensional. This vehicle had greater mobility that allowed it to take wide-angle and close-up pictures. So, the ROV expedition to the Fitzgerald took place between August 23rd to August 26th of 1989, over a four-day span 
the ROV cameras or its cameras recorded the most compelling footage of the Fitzgerald which had not been seen before hand. So, you know, it's great to have uh, new sophisticated technology. The bigger question is, even with this new sophisticated technology, is it going to be able to answer all of the questions that uh, theorists and even the Marine Board and the Coast Guard themselves have been pondering for, what, the last four to five years since the Fitzgerald sank? The ROV had a system known as TSS, known as the Toad Survey System. The TSS's first big find was discovering the Fitzgerald's radio tower. The ROV findings confirmed that the pilot house itself was badly damaged. Interesting enough that when the Curve expedition took place uh, 13 years earlier in 1976, the Curve vehicle, or should I say that uh, controlled cable underwater research vehicle was not able to locate the pilot house. They, that machine was convinced that the pilot house itself was completely obliterated due to the, um, due to the waves that broke the Fitzgerald apart. Well, the pilot house itself, yes, was badly damaged Based off of the findings from the ROV, the items to the pilot house were sent scattering everywhere when the Fitzgerald slammed into the lake floor. Even the ship's radio telephone cords were located. They were dangling loose in the water. And what do you know? There were uh, some items of clothing located. But, no bodies were discovered. I can't imagine if this uh, remote-operated um, vehicle had, in fact, discovered any bodies. But let alone discovering some items of clothing should also come as um, a haunting reminder of those 29 men who lost their lives. The ROV's footage of the pilot house confirmed that the starboard pilot house was in fact open. Well, why is that important to know if in fact the starboard pilot house was open? Well, this led some people to wonder, I should say the theorists, or those who were, um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call them conspiracy theorists. That sounds uh, to me a little uh, harsh because nobody is interested in uh, with this ship or any other Great Lakes shipwreckage and engaging in a witch hunt activity. But theorists are now beginning to wonder if one or more men in the pilot house had tried to abandon the ship. Some masters and mates aboard other ships throughout uh, maritime history on the Great Lakes would often leave a door open during a storm so they could hear other ships' foghorns and whistles. This would also give those people who on the ship more time to perhaps prepare for the unexpected. You would like to believe that you would have time on your side at all costs to prepare for the unexpected, but... I still believe that given the 
circumstances that the Fitzgerald was facing in her last minutes that it would have virtually been impossible to have launched a lifeboat, to have even gotten your life jacket on because everything was coming so quick. And even if you did have a life jacket on, even if you had a lifeboat launched ready to go, who's to say that you would not have been tossed out of your lifeboat given just how destructive those waves were? But there were those who became convinced that the men aboard the Fitzgerald might have had more warning than previously assumed. I believe anything could have been possible that night. Even if, even if they did have a little bit more warning, there's still not a 100% guarantee that any one of those 29 men could have survived that night and lived to tell that mysterious tale. But I do think it's pretty amazing what this ROV was able to find, that the uh, pilot house uh, itself was still there despite it being badly damaged, and they were still able to spot telephone cords, radio telephone cords, as well as items of clothing. The ROV images revealed that the Fitzgerald herself remained unchanged <clears throat> despite extensive damage. The white paint remained intact without impacts of rust or corrosion. The letters, or let alone the wording, Edmund Fitzgerald, remains visible. The ROV revealed a sea of taconite on the floor, that is, the taconite pellets the ship was transporting. Ordinary, everyday people, including researchers, began speculating that the stern section might have floated upside down briefly, dropping cargo on the bow section before falling to rest. Damage to the bow provided that it probably sank first before the stern, which I do believe would have been the case. The ROV expedition itself produced five hours of solid footage into the Fitzgerald's wreckage. Five hours of, of footage that nobody else had seen until now. So from 1975 to 1989, we're looking at 14 years. It also goes to show you that people were not giving up on this ship. In other words, yes, the ship may have sank but people were still eager to learn more about not just what the ship had done for 18 years out on the lake, out on the Great Lakes themselves, but what clues she could give to researchers in the aftermath of her sinking. After all, I think it's pretty amazing that given that, yes, she met a sadly, she met a terrible death that she still, that she's resting peacefully at the bottom of Lake Superior, that the ship itself has not corroded. It's not, it's not, uh, what do you call it, corroded to the point where years from now it may no longer be there. I certainly hope that's not the case, and I, I say that because I do know that uh, Titanic, and I've heard about this in the news, 
that it's only a matter of time before Titanic will no longer exist at the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean. So, this expedition was more about testing new advanced underwater technology versus conducting an actual investigation into Fitzgerald's disappearance. There again, was the ROV expedition trying to profit? No. As a matter of fact, it was an expedition that was um, funded, it was privately funded, but the University of Michigan as well as Michigan State University both uh, teamed up to with, uh, with other well-known organizations, one of them being the National Geographic Society, that also had a hand in this uh, expedition. Now, would you say that given that the ROV expedition accomplished more than what the Curve expedition did, are researchers still satisfied with everything they could have learned at this time? Perhaps, but, but they still believe that more could be done. So in the next podcast, I will discuss with you all what, um, what transpires in the following decade, being the 90s, because the, the future expedition to the Fitzgerald in the 1990s is going to be one that um, is, going to, um, is going to uncover some things that um, are going to um, bring, fam- bring the families of those who lost their loved ones closer but also it's going to raise new questions about visiting wreckage sites. In other words, okay, if you've uncovered something that's sensitive, should you be allowed to go back there again? Because if not, then are you disturbing? Are, are you, is it lawfully okay to disturb a grave site? Well, we've covered a lot of information tonight, and I look forward to another podcast session here soon. And remember, folks, even though the Fitzgerald sank 45 years ago, her legacy still lives on. And remember, Lake Superior, otherwise known as Gitchagumi, is the lake that never gives up her dead, even when the skies of November turn gloomy. Take care for now, and good night.